Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm so happy today to welcome Dr. Diane Barnes to the Morning Glory Project. Diane M. Barnes, MD, is a writer, actor, speaker, and retired radiologist. A graduate of Stanford and Yale School of Medicine, she trained at UCSF and Stanford and practiced at Kaiser. After a brain hemorrhage, Diane segued from the medical profession to performance. Her stroke and recovery is chronicled in her first award-winning solo show, My Stroke of Luck. Now a Meisner-trained actor, Diane studied improvisation at BATS with Keith Johnstone and solo performance with Anna DeVere Smith. Her latest show, Not One of Us, about the intersection of class, race, privilege, gender, and medicine in her life, premiered to great acclaim at the recent Playground Solo Performance Festival on Zoom. Diane Barnes, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, Diane, tell me a bit about your life before 2005. (laughs) Well, I was a fairly uh, driven, maybe type B, because in my in my profession, there were certainly a lot of people a lot more intense than I, um, but intense um, working radiologist. I was an adoptive mom of a single adoptive parent of two sons who were at the time uh, 12 and 14. So you had your hands full? I had my hands full, yes. Um, the younger one had been in boarding school because he was a double handful, and, and he had always really wanted to go to boarding school. So I did allow him uh, sixth grade to go. Um, so he wasn't with me all the time, but my older son was. And so what changed in 2005? Tell me about those events. <laughs> well, everything. <laughs> everything changed. Yes. Um, Tell me about that. Yes. So my older son had uh, some learning disabilities, including motor planning uh, deficit. And um, so horseback riding had been suggested as a way for him to work that through. So he began to ride at um, Hallett Creek uh, Riding Stables, which is for children with various um, motor planning deficits and, and physical uh, limitations or learning disorders to help them with issues of balance and mastery. And he loved it. And so then he wanted real riding lessons. So he did riding and vaulting, which is some somersaults and gymnastics on horseback on these giant horses. And then his brother wanted to join him doing that. And after a while, I thought, why aren't I doing this with them? Because I would go to their shows and, and watch their 
their progress. So we all started riding. And um, there was this was, and we got two horses, one for my older son and one for me. And I was, um, it was a Saturday night and I was going to team penning, which is an event. Uh, it's done on the ranch because you need to do it, but it's done as a hobby for a lot of suburban and <laughs> rural people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it involves cutting out numbered cattle from a herd and guiding them into a pen. So we, there was something we could do together, but this night I went by myself and um, I was warming my horse up and all of a sudden he stopped paying any attention and he turned right when I said turn left and he went straight across the arena and stopped in front of our vet. And at that moment I had the worst headache of my life. This is not just a headache. This is no. This is um. You know, if you're a radiologist, so I, I'm a radiologist. So I had never. I don't have headaches. I've certainly seen many migraine sufferers, but at least once a week, once every two weeks, someone would come in with the worst headache of their lives, and it is blinding. If, if for to me, it felt as if a red hot poker must be going through my brain. Mm. But I immediately knew from having seen that description year after year what was happening, that I had a likely a hemorrhagic stroke. Something had ruptured and I was bleeding into my brain. As you say it this way, I think, you know, it's almost as if there's an advantage in knowing and a disadvantage to know how scary and bad it is, right? Exactly. And in fact, it was the knowing and the having observed many times the consequences of these ruptured aneurysms or AVMs or vascular malformations, essentially. Uh, having seen a number of them, in fact, we had a nurse in the ICU at the time who had collapsed with a hemorrhage and had not recovered, uh, you know, in, in, in weeks had not recovered consciousness. So it was, it was too bad for me that I knew so much Mm. because I immediately pulled out something that's not in the, uh, physician's manual, which is denial. Mm. (laughs) And so I fumbled around a, a while and I remember the, the vet helping to tie the horse up and asking if I wanted to go to the hospital or something was going on or what was wrong. And me just saying oh, no, nothing, I just need to lie down and um, not accepting help. Well, let me let me pause you there because it seems such a contradiction because on one hand, you knew how bad it could be and what it was in all likelihood and still... Do you think it was a function of the stroke itself that that made you go into that denial place? Or do you think it was just like any of us might, you know, oh, no, this is just a headache, uh, you know? What do you think that was? Both, really. Because um, denial, of course, you know, and women tend to go into denial. I knew my children were at the movies and I'm their only parent. And what would happen if I just disappeared from the arena? Um so there was a lot of fear and the, the need to take care of someone else, putting my children before my own welfare, which women tend to do. 
um, and get care later. You know, for heart attack, people will finish cooking their husband's dinner, get the kids to bed and then go to the hospital. Well, that's not the right order, right? Um, yeah, that's definitely a sequencing problem. Yeah, totally. But, but, but it, it still stuns me, though, because I, I understand that. I, I I will confess to having made some of those poor choices myself, not for a heart attack or a stroke, thank God. But in other ways, I've had times when it's just like, you know, no, I got to take care of this first. Mm-hmm. And so I get that part of it. But what I don't get is how knowing if, if I knew it was a hemorrhagic bleed, mm-hmm. might that change the sequence? And for you, it didn't. So that's kind of weirdly astounding to me. <laughs> well, here's what else I knew. That my chance of surviving for 24 hours was 50-50. And that if I survived, my chance of surviving intact was about one in four. Hmm. So that's not great odds if we do the math. Correct. And I I was a math whiz, but, (laughs) but I think it was, I think it was something different. I think it was given the odds. The best thing is for me just to get home and die in bed. Wow. Um, And part of that was not having watched patients in the ICU for four weeks, six weeks um, and not regaining function. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it still was a poor choice. It was still, yeah, we're not applauding that. No, no, it was just not the right thing to do. But I think I thought, well, the odds are against me. And if I survive, uh, I, I, I have seen a lot of cases where I felt we did heroics and I didn't want to be a salvage. Hmm. And um, of course, if I'd been an optimist, I would have said, oh, but I'm, I'll be the 50 that survives and I'll be the one in four who's fine. But um, it's the combination of, I think, denial, how much I knew, and that I had a brain injury at the instant it happened. Which clouded your judgment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, and I, I also want to put out here too, it sounds as though, and you, you and I don't know each other in person, it sounds as though at the time, I mean, here you were horseback riding, it sounds like you were pretty fit. Yes. I went to the gym, for, even with kids and work, I still went to the gym four times a week, walk the dogs. We tried to get in five miles. You know, I, we went regularly riding. I was normal weight, no cholesterol, no no medical risk factors. And and how? what was your age, if you don't mind my asking? Mm, uh, Younger than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then you do, Mom. Yeah. Yes. I was that, in my 50s. Okay, so you were in your 50s. I, I mean, the reason I ask that is because I, I think that folks listening might not think that a fit woman with no other comorbid conditions and a healthy weight and all of that wouldn't be such at risk for right. a stroke like this. So it's that that was my purpose. I, I, yes. Pardon me for snooping into no. your demographics there. <laughs> no, that's all right. And and I should be able to say, but I don't want to. Um, um, but um, yes, you know, and, and 50s is not the time you expect debilitating strokes. But um, these, the bleeds, you know, there are, there are two, the two kinds of strokes, which is um, hemorrhagic, which is what I had. And um, then the ischemic, which is not enough blood to the brain. So one is too much blood and the other one's not enough. <laughs> right. Well, it's blood bursts. It's something's burst. So it's uh, it's too much blood where it doesn't belong. Okay. You know, 
um, a pop, something pops and the blood right. seeps into the brain tissue. The other type is the ischemic is the type that's associated more with diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol, uh, overweight, inactivity. Okay. Um, and the hemorrhagic tend, well, atrial fibrillation is a risk. Um, and overcoagulation is a risk, but in general, clotting, right? Right. I'm simplifying the language oh, for those yes, of who aren't medicos. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's the trouble with radiologists. We're doctors to other doctors. You know, we give our reports to other doctors, <laughs> not patients. So, um, and usually they skew much younger. Mm. And they tend to be devastating. Um, they can occur in newborns, in 10-year-olds, um, 25-year-olds. Um, and um, in fact, we had a senator some years back who had a hemorrhage. And as I, as I recall, he, he died. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not unusual. Um, I, I actually knew someone who had a child who had a stroke during birth. Yes. Yes. Which, I mean, horrifying, of course. Well, so so you got yourself home. I got myself against home. all odds. Mm-hmm. Got yourself home, and then what? What? What happened? The next morning, I woke up and I was like, "Where am I? This place is funny." I mean, <laughs> who knew heaven would look just like my house, right? <laughs> and then I realized, oh, my headache was still there, <laughs> and so. Mm okay, nope, I'm alive. Well, I made it. And then my next thought was, how do I get my kid to camp? So because my younger son, my sons went to a summer camp and because they're two boys and they're competitive, I sent them in sequential weeks rather than at the same time. And I tried to get him a ride to camp and hadn't been successful because the other families in our neighborhood who were sending their kids to that camp were dropping the kids off at the end of a week-long trip or two-week family trip. So here you are, still in the middle of this medical crisis, and you're still arranging rides for your kid. Yes. And actually, they hadn't come home, so I had to go over to the neighbor's house. I, I mean, I guessed which neighbor they would be at with and um got my son and drove to camp turned around and drove back to my own kaiser passing about 6 in the process and my son tells me now that he kept telling me i shouldn't be driving <laughs> well that's what i was wondering cuz my notion of a stroke is that you would be showing visible signs of this going on and and it astounds me that you could go home get to bed, sleep through this, wake up in the morning, have this, still make phone calls, get in your car, drive. No, I didn't make a phone call. I didn't, because I had tried to get the rides before. So I knew that I I had, if he was going to, if he were going to get to camp, I would have to do it. So my point though here is yes. you were doing a lot of stuff in the middle of this whole thing happening. Yes. And, and it's astounding to me that that's, that sounds like, you know, a many hours process. It was ours. It was Jamestown. So it was a 120 mile drive each way. It was the most, the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. 120 miles. Gee mm-hmm. I have no recollection of it, except there was a drive I did every summer, you know, but still I have no recollection. And I had actually the life of Pi um, audio book in the car. And six months later, when I got back in the car <laughs> after, uh, you know, enough rehab that I could sit in the car. 
I saw that I had listened to the whole book and I had no recollection of any of it. Wow. You know, that makes me think of in a completely different context, of course, because I've worked with uh, folks that have chemical dependency. I've worked with people that are blackout drinkers Mm. and they have gotten on airplanes and traveled across the country and not and not known how they got there. Wow! Because they were so intoxicated. So it sounds like almost like a fugue state of sorts. Yes, uh, where your body was going on, but you were not filing the the memory cards. Exactly, I was not there. Uh, you know, I do remember seeing lots of blue and white Kaiser signs <laughs> and asking myself, "Why am I not pulling in here?" And I never did answer that question. I just, it was, why don't you pull in here? And I just was frozen. You know, I, wow. I, I, and, and my son tells me that he, he said, you, you shouldn't be driving. And I was scared to death to be with you. But who listens to kids? <laughs> well, <laughs> you apparently don't. And you apparently don't listen to yourself very well either. No. So, so tell me what the, what then after, I assume at some point you got into that Kaiser and what, what were the effects of this stroke for you? Okay. Well, I had um, um, hemi, right hemiparesis. So I was um, very weak on my right side, muscle weakness. And I had an aphasia. In other words, I, I could speak. But I made no sense. Mm-hmm. I had a, a, a word salad is what they call mm-hmm. it, so that the words are real, but you might as well have put, cut them up, cut up a sentence, thrown it in a salad spinner, spun it around and thrown the words back out. And I had a lot of um, odd sensory problems. For example, I could not differentiate sounds at the level they were coming in. So a truck outside the house and a bird and a lawnmower would all sound the same volume and screeching in my head. Mm. Um, And that went on, oh, for months. That sounds hellish. It really is. It it is. Some people tell me that's what their hearing aids feel like. Um, But it, 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 it was probably five years before I could go in a restaurant and hear the person I was, I mean, I didn't because I couldn't, you know, you and I could be face to face. I could be able to read your lips, but I could not hear your voice any I could not discern your voice from the ambient sounds. I could not. So it was, that was one of the hardest things because that was very isolating. Mm. I also had to relearn um, a lot of things. I didn't have words for anything. I mean, not only did I have trouble expressing myself because of this sort of aphasia I had, but I did not know what items were. I had to relearn you know, what a sink is, what a faucet is, how you turn it on. You had to relearn English. Yes. And I had objects. And so one of, I remember one of the rehabs, you know, it was pictures, you know, the same as if you were teaching a child in a foreign language, you know, you hold mm-hmm. up a picture, uh, not a, you know, a flashcard of a shoe and you have to find the name for it. <laughs> what was it like to be in your body, not able to come up with words like shoe? Horrible. I can't. It was, um, I mean, and they would tell me one day and the next day I would forget again. So we basically had a lot of yellow stickers all around everything on the house, you know, on the door and on the. Just labels? Yeah, labels and instructions like they had told me not to use the stove, but of course I wanted 
you know, I ultimately had to use just the microwave, but, you know, I had a... But, but we've established that you don't necessarily listen so well to such instructions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we've determined that, Diane. <laughs> right? Details. <laughs> for, for, for good or for not. I, I, yes. So tell me what the the dark darkest moments were like for you. What, what was the hardest part of this? Because clearly we're listening to you and you're talking and you're fluent in your language and we know you made it to the other side and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But tell me what it was like in the darkest part. If I hadn't two young children whose birth parents I had promised I will send them to college because those were opportunities both sets had been denied. I don't think I would have found the strength, and I'm a strong person and I've done a lot of things, but I do not think I could have found the strength to come up from the depths of the, you know, you have ears that are betraying you because everything's a screech. Your mouth is betraying you because you can't be understood. Your body's weak. You use a cane and stumble around and can't judge distances and yourself, so you bump into things. And they tell you know, and and um, for instance, the um, the occupational therapist came over to the house and said, "Let me watch you for a little while." And she said, "Diane, you're practicing forgetting. I see you stand up and move to a room, and I know you need something or want something, and you get there and you have no idea. So I'm seeing you turn around, go back, and sit on your bed again, looking totally dejected. If you want something, say you're thirsty. You get up and you say, glass of water, glass of water, glass of water. And you say that until the water glass is at your lips. So in other words, it's, you know, walking across, open the cabinet, or close the cabinet, get the glass, to, you know. Um, so it was in in the midst of that. And then I get to the cabinet and I don't remember what it is. What is this thing called, you know, and and, and what is it I'm supposed to get here? And it was this feeling that I would never be the person I was, that I would never have a level of competence. And a few days in rehab, I just was, um, you know, I had a lot of computer remediated. Once I was well enough to leave the house and, um, and concentrate because I was sleeping, you know, 20, 22 hours a day for the first couple of months. But when I got to the point where I could sleep only say 16 hours, and I started doing a lot of computer remediation and, and one-on-one work with uh, various therapists. It was the absolute fear that I would never again be a human being that I recognized. You know, it makes I, it makes me wonder as you describe that sensation, if it gave you an even more profound empathy for those who have dementia and Alzheimer's and other kind other forms of dementia, and they don't necessarily come back. Right. You know, actually, dementia never crossed my mind, but my son's learning disabilities did, mm. because I had never understood how profoundly challenging it is when things don't come easily. Hmm. Um, 
And so it gave me a much more compassion for, and, and I would see later on when I was better and I would see older people in front of me in the grocery store line, you know, how you try to get the short line and then you, you don't really check who's there, but it's a short line. And then you see it's somebody older who's got a change purse out and is counting nickels out right. to pay a $2 purchase or, you know, can't make the change. And it means incredible compassion mm. for, and I, before I would have just been impatient, but, uh, you know, knowing that people, and I guess people with mental illness, it didn't occur to me, maybe it would have been too scary to think of dementia because I never did. Mm. Um, but, but certainly I thought of all the other ways in which we are challenged, slowed down and other people have no idea what's going on in your brain. And particularly if your body looks fine. Yes. And, and you, you look young enough, you know, when, when I, at one point I was well enough about mm, eight or 10 months in to, I made jewelry. And so they suggested that I go back to the jewelry studio and work because it was a low risk way to challenge my competences, you know, my ability to follow instructions, to read, to, to do something with 3D spatial with my hand eye coordination. And people were one time, a whole bunch of people were talking on either side of me. And I said, can you excuse me, can you please be quiet? And they kept talking and they kept talking. And I just, at one point, I just put my hands over my ears and I think I, I left the room screaming and everybody thought I was out of my mind, but. <laughs> but it was agonizing. I, yes. Um, and who would know? Nobody knew what was going on in my head. Well, isn't that the truth in so many ways in our lives, when we encounter people, we have our assumptions about them and we have no idea what's going on in their minds, in their bodies, in their souls, in their spirits, in their worries, in their finances. We have no idea what their circumstances and experiences are. And it sounds like this built you a, a bridge of compassion. Yeah. I, I want to ask you then, so this drive to provide for these kids to keep the promise that you'd given to their birth parents sounds like it was an important one that kept you going. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, when I do my show, I've always had, in, I, I try to do a Q and a afterwards if, if, if it's possible in the theater. And there's always someone who asks, you know, where did you find the motivation and how did you keep going? Because my loved one who is often sitting beside them has given up. Mm-hmm. Or my loved one's doctors have given up on them. And I think um, it, it, it motivation, and you have to have a little bit of either grace or optimism or, or faith, because it is so much work. They say internship is hard. They said medical school is hard. Having a young baby is hard. There is You put all that together, it doesn't even begin to hit one on the one to 10 scale of rehab or at least in my experience, um, it was, I was on my knees crying almost every day for six, eight month period. Um, and, um, you have to have some belief in yourself and something bigger than yourself to come back for, hmm. because I could see if I had been 20 years older, or if I had no one in my life who depended on me, that, the amount of work, the mountain I had to climb was huge, but I couldn't keep, I couldn't 
that was not in my mind. My mind was, I have to get to the top. Hmm. So Diane, it's fascinating. I wish we had hours because <laughs> I'd like to talk with you more and I, I hope to sometime, but I want to ask you about this show, how you turned this not so funny thing into comedy. <laughs> Well, it's, you know, the thing is, the truth is that when you tell the truth, often it's funny, you know, um, if you're really honest about what's going on, there's often a lot of humor in it. So, um, I, when I, I didn't set out to write a show. Um, but, um, when I knew that I would, that medicine, I got back to work part-time and after a year. And it no longer felt like me. It wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. So as I began plotting my exit, um, I thought, you know, I need something else that that occupies me. I want to do something else, something that fits this new self. And I started um, a, a continuing ed catalog came from Stanford in the mail with a course called Show Up for Your Life, using the Tools of Improvisation. What a title for you. Yes. Show up for your life. Yeah, duh. I mean, at that (laughs) point, I still didn't know. This was five years in now, and I was still in rehab, and I still didn't know if I'd get back to being a me. I was was not crying all the time. I mean, I was capable and moving around, but I was still not fully well in my head. And um, anyway, I loved it. It was fabulous fun, the improv. And um, the same semester, there was another class there called Compass Vision, which was about planning for career change. And many of the people in it were people in, you know, mid-career with golden handcuffs or English majors who had started in one job and just were looking for something else. But two or three of us were on the cusp of retirement and, and, and visioning for some new role. And I looked I had to map all the ups and downs in my life and what were the similarities and what, and I realized, uh, you know, creative things had sustained me sometimes in the past. So taking that and the improv at the same time, and then we were in required to see a show up at Bats Bay Area Theater Sports, which is probably the premier improv group in the Bay. There are a few offshoots of it with members who have uh, extra little groups. Um, but, um, and I loved it and it was great fun. So I started watching the show. So I started volunteering, then meeting people. Then I started taking classes. One thing led to another and I did their whole series of trainings. And then I saw a lot of the best improvisers were also trained actors. So I started taking acting classes at the College of Marin. Along the way, I studied with Keith Johnstone, who's just brilliant. Um, and Anna Devere Smith, who of course, solo art, solo performance is an art form that she has taken to a whole nother level. Mm. Um, and anyway, one thing led to another. Someone said at, at one class, a solo performance uh, class at College of Marin taught by W. Allen Taylor, whose um, show In Search of My Father, I think was the best solo show in San Francisco, 2004, 2005. And um, for our performance for the final, I did a story about uh, qualifying to adopt my older son. And a couple people in the audience came up in tears and hugged me and said, this is what you're meant to do. You're telling my story. Oh my God, you're speaking to me. 
And I thought, wow, if this, this is a powerful form. Well, I'm going to make an inference here by the title of that show, My Stroke of Luck, that you (laughs) have emerged from this. I mean, heaven knows you wouldn't want to go back to it. It sounds like a hellish time, but it sounds as though you feel as though you've come out of it more fortunate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. And that is why it's titled that way. Because otherwise, I I might still be working now. Um, It's been 15 years, but a lot of my cohorts are still working. And there's nothing wrong. You know, the medical profession is a noble field, of course, but it sounds like you didn't want to sit in a dark room looking at films. Right. No, that's exactly right. And it's so... And it was really healing for the family to to write the story. I um, interviewed both boys. And when they saw it, particularly the younger one who'd been away in boarding, he was home that summer when I was a total mess. And then the next summer he stayed with his coach up in boarding school. So when he saw the show, he had a 180, I guess, 360 would bring him back where he started. But the way he saw what I'd gone through what his brother had gone through, and um, it, it just made all the difference to healing for all three of us. Well, now you're tapping into my wheelhouse here because I just believe, and I know in my soul and in my experience, that when we tell our stories in the truest way, yes, miracles happen. <laughs> miracles of connection, miracles of insight, miracles of healing even. I'm so glad that you found your way back to this person. And if folks want to find out about you, uh, where would they find you, Diane? The best thing would be my website, which is dianebarnes415.com. And the 415, it's the area code of the San Francisco Bay Area, the dominant one, because Diane Barnes is a common name. Okay. And Diane is D-I-A-N-E. Barnes is B-A-R-N-E-S. 415 So if you want to find out more about My Stroke of Luck and Diane's other performances, and once we can gather again after this COVID period, I I hope that I will be on your mailing list and you'll let me know when you perform. I'm definitely going to want to come and see that show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Diane, for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I so appreciate your time and, and, and for your sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. You know, it's been a couple of days that I've gotten to reflect on my conversation with Diane Barnes. And the thing that keeps popping up in my mind is how much her mothering became a part of her own, not only her survival, but also how she neglected herself. It's sort of this overused metaphor of the double-edged sword, right? On one hand, it was wanting to protect her kids, spare her kids, all of that that kept her not seeking the help that she needed when she was in the middle of and afterward having a stroke. What kind of drive that is that that we're given as parents, whether biological or adoptive, male or female, doesn't matter. But when you're a parent, there's this unspeakable drive to take care of your kids no matter what, and sometimes to your own detriment. Finding a balance with that is a tricky thing because, of course, had she not been just ever so fortunate to have been in that small percentage of people that made it out of her medical circumstances, her kids wouldn't have their mom. So it's 
on one hand, a, a courageous thing, and on, on the other hand, kind of a foolish thing that we do sometimes when we neglect ourselves for our kids. And then at the same time, I have to say, here's the other edge of that sword, that it was her drive to provide for these kids in the way that she had promised their biological parents that she would, that kept her healing and growing through really difficult physical therapy, emotional process, all of that. That power of love, that power of devotion, there's no name for it. I mean, they call it maternal instinct and all of that kind of stuff, but boy, it's it's bigger than that. It's, it's so in, endemic to who we are, that survival instinct, that caring for our kids, that that then, of course, when you meet a parent that lacks that, it's so shocking when you meet a parent who always puts their needs above the needs of their children. It's always so disorienting, isn't it? We think, what the hell? What's wrong with them? But Diane exemplifies both the wonderful power of maternal love and devotion and the danger of it. How we have to, as parents also think of ourselves. It's tricky business, that stuff, isn't it? <laughs> tricky business. I know that, particularly as my kids were growing up, I know that, that all of us struggled, and I didn't have a stroke in the middle of it, but there are always challenges when your own needs and your kids' needs were in competition in some way and finding the right kind of balance of self-care and self-preservation. You know, I used to teach parenting classes, and one of the things that I often taught in those classes was that children don't get their self-esteem by simply us telling them that they're wonderful and loved. Those are important things. I'm, I, we want to tell our kids they're loved and that they're special and wonderful and adored. But they also get their self-esteem by watching our self-esteem, by watching how we treat ourselves. We're modeling for them how they should treat themselves. So while I'm ever so glad that Diane is still with us and that that her love for her kids got her through, I also want to wag a finger at her a little bit and say, oh my gosh, that denial thing, that almost killed you. So finding that balance is an important thing. I, I know she wags the finger at herself, so she doesn't need me to do that, of course. Love as a driving force, that's the extra bloom that I drew from the conversation with Diane Barnes. Thanks so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project. It's my honor to hear these stories and my double honor to share them with you. Wherever you are, I hope that you're finding your own way to bloom. <laughs>